Welcome to Screen Time with Richard Roper and Rokan. I am Richard Roper. Rokan has the week off, but we got a lot to talk about this week. Uh, tons of new movies and streaming shows coming up this week. And I'm even going to give you a preview of some of the stuff coming out next week because next week is the short Thanksgiving week. So I know a lot of people are thinking about what am I going to watch that's new on one of the streaming services? What am I going to watch at the movies? We're going to talk about all of that and some of the latest developments in the entertainment industry. There's a lot of sequel talk. Big shock. There's always a lot of sequel talk, but a lot of news about sequels, upcoming sequels, and I'm going to have a review of a much-anticipated sequel all on this program. Before we get to that, though, I want to remind you the digital landscape is changing rapidly, and to compete in today's business environment, you need an experienced partner. Since 1995, AmericanEagle.com has partnered with companies of all sizes offering web design and development e-commerce, mobile apps, and digital marketing to drive your overall business success because they believe today's online world is your opportunity. Visit AmericanEagle.com today to get started. And as I record this, by the way, I am actually in the gorgeous, cutting-edge, still considered spanking new, even though we've been here for a while, AmericanEagle.com studios at their headquarters. Happy to be here, and thanks to everybody who helps out. I'm going to start off by talking about some of the latest developments in the world of entertainment. Here's a question for you. Anybody looking for a Lethal Weapon 5? That's right. The announcement came this week that we're going to get a Lethal Weapon 5. Now, uh, the great Richard Donner was the director of the original Lethal Weapon in 1987. He also did the, the, the famous Superman movie with uh, Christopher Reeve, a lot of other great stuff, and in fact directed all the Weapon movies, uh, including Lethal Weapon 2 and the cleverly named Lethal Weapon 3 and the originally named Lethal Weapon 4. He was going to direct Lethal Weapon 5. It was going to be the last entry in the franchise. Uh, we lost uh, the late, great Richard Donner uh, in July. He was 91 years old. He was working on the fifth installment. That had been in development on and off for years. All kinds of different script writers. Uh, the Hollywood Reporter uh, mentioned that um, Richard Wank, who wrote the Denzel Washington version of Equalizer, there was a TV show, but the, the recent Equalizer movies had written the latest draft. Now comes word. Are you ready for this? Guess who's going to step behind the camera once again to direct the latest and last, we're told, Although we get told that a lot, that it's the last sequel. Then if it does really well, then it's not the last sequel. But we're told that Mel Gibson is going to step behind the camera once again. Mel Gibson will direct and, of course, star in Lethal Weapon 5. Mel Gibson apparently, reportedly, mentioned this while speaking at an event in London recently. He said that uh, he claims that Richard Donner had said to him, listen, kid, if I kick the bucket, you will do it. And I said, shut up. But he did uh, indeed then pass away. He asked me to do it. And at that time, I didn't say anything. But I talked to his wife, he says, in the studio. And they've all kind of uh, come on board on this, according to uh, Mel Gibson and the reports. So we're going to get Lethal Weapon 5, directed by Mel Gibson. Of course, Mel Gibson is uh, directed Lots of films, Passion of the Christ, uh, Braveheart, which is, I think, in, as time goes on, a little overrated. But he, he clearly knows his way uh, behind the camera. And we all know that Mel Gibson has had a lot of problems off camera. 
on and off for years and years, uh, including rage incidents and alcoholism and some horrible slurs. Uh, he has been forgiven by Hollywood, that's for sure. I mean, we've seen Mel Gibson at award shows. We've seen him uh, get roles, see him acting all the time. Uh, lethal Weapon. The first Lethal Weapon we've talked about on this podcast, and um, I'm going to have a special tribute to the original Lethal Weapon next month right here on Screen Time. The 1987 Lethal Weapon is one of the seminal action buddy cop movies of all time, along with 48 Hours, I think really set the bar for, you know, the classic mismatched buddy cop movies. Now, we had had those for decades before that, but this was a new era. The hard R rating, the violence, sexuality, the language, uh, and the combination of big-time set pieces, practical effects, sometimes a little bit of uh, special effects as well, action sequences, and really, really good comedy. And, of course, great casts and the, the key to the Lethal Weapon franchise. First of all, Shane Black wrote an amazing script that you know took Hollywood by storm. And then the casting of Mel Gibson and Danny Glover. You might remember the original Lethal Weapon. Again, 1987, so let's see. Let me do my St. Jude the Apostle math. 87 to 97, 97 to 07, 07 to 17. That's like 30-some years ago. And the, one of the big catchphrases was Danny Glover. Remember, it started off, it was his 50th birthday. And he kept uh, saying throughout the movie, I'm too old for this shit. So that would put him in his 80s and Mel Gibson in his 70s for this last lethal weapon. We'll see what they do with it. I don't have a ton of faith that it's going to be a great sequel. The first Lethal Weapon was terrific. The second was, I, I didn't love it. A lot of people think it's better than the first because they got to know the characters in the first. and It did get bigger, and it was good. It was solid. It was kind of a more generic, I felt, uh, action movie that just happened to have those guys. And then three and four, we got into comedy. We got into you know Joe Pesci and Chris Rock and all these kind of guest third wheels, and they were kind of terrible, which is why you haven't seen a Lethal Weapon movie in quite a while. We even got a TV show not that long ago. I don't know how many people watched it. I know I didn't. So, you know, there's there's something about the franchise that continues to have this long-range appeal. I don't know when we're going to see the Lethal Weapon franchise. Just announced now, as I mentioned, that Mel Gibson's going to direct and star in it. So it would probably be a couple of years off. But there you have it. Whether you want it or not, Lethal Weapon 5. All right, in other sequel news, there's another Downton Abbey movie coming. Now, of course... The series, Julian Fellows series, I loved it. If you didn't love it, I suggest you go back and see it, even if you don't think you want to watch a series set in the early part of the 20th century with a bunch of rich folks, and it was kind of the upstairs, downstairs, all about the rich folks, and then the servants downstairs. It was beautifully done. It was a it was a high-class, well-acted, beautifully photographed soap opera, and it was just beautifully done, and it was a hit for a long time. And then they did the movie a couple of years ago, Downton Abbey the movie, which picked up the action toward the late 20s. And the royals were coming to visit the, you know, the entire family at, at the beautiful estate. Movie did really well. I liked it. It kind of felt like it wasn't totally necessary, but it was just fun seeing so many of the original characters back. Certain developments going on, beautiful cinematography, the famous Downton Abbey theme made more than 250 million dollars worldwide and i guess they decided as they were making the sequel or the movie version i should say the movie version they decided right then and there they were going to do a sequel so they they were already kind of on board 
one of the most difficult things uh, in getting the sequel going was getting that amazing cast together because a lot of them have continued. They, some of them were already doing fine work and had been doing character work years before that, but then became bigger stars. So, you know, to get uh, Hugh Bonham and, of course, Dame Maggie Smith and Michelle Dockery and others uh, all at the same time to get their schedules together, especially during COVID, was not easy, but they have done it. Hey, let's take a listen to the trailer for the new Downton Abbey movie. Years ago, before you were born, I met a man, and now I've come into the possession of a villa in the south of France. What? Three, two, one. They better be warned. The British are coming. And with that, I will say goodnight and leave you to discuss my mysterious past. And of course, uh, it's just, it's got that wonderful period piece look. I, I, I'm led to believe here they're going to go outside of the Abbey. Might be in France for some of this. But it's picking up uh, shortly after the events of the Downton Abbey movie. So we'd be in the 1930s. I always thought it'd be really cool if they, if they wanted to do a TV series, a streaming series, uh, where you could do the descendants of the entire family, you know, various branches of the family. You could pick it up in the 50s or in the 70s or even in present day where they'd just be referring and referencing uh, their great-great-grandmothers and their great-grandfathers and their granduncles. And maybe you'd have a couple of the young characters from the original Downton Abbey now playing the matriarchs and patriarchs. But I am looking forward to the Downton Abbey movie. They could do these for as long as they want, as long as the cast wants to do them because they're... They're kind of ready-made now. They're sort of like the dinners at Downton Abbey. Uh, the, the place settings are there. Everything's in place. The writing is going to be solid. We know that. The main thing really is, is getting the cast together and uh, finding a way to do it in these, these continuing uh, difficult times. But I would not be surprised if we see another Downton Abbey movie. I also want to mention, uh, we're going to talk more. We got the, usually on this episode, we have What Not to Watch in the Thursday 3, and we're going to do that, but... I want to talk before we even get to that in the first half of the podcast about the sequel that is coming out this week, and it's called Ghostbusters Afterlife. This is, of course, the highly anticipated latest entry in the Ghostbusters franchise. Now, we got to go back again to the 1980s, a few years before Lethal Weapon. 1984, the original Ghostbusters came out, and that, too, was a groundbreaking pop culture phenomenon because it combined Marx Brothers-esque comedy with genuine big budget special effects that were cutting edge for the time practical effects including models and all that sort of stuff into this giant blockbuster and Billy Murray Dan Aykroyd Harold Ramis had already you know established themselves as young comedy royalty but this was next level stuff this was superstardom huge huge hit and really grabbed the culture in a way that only a couple of movies a year ever do, where people are still going to be talking about this for generations to come, as they have. We had Ghostbusters 2 about five years later, brought everybody back, including Sigourney Weaver. It was okay. Again, it was not the greatest sequel of all time. And then we had animated series and video games and toys and offshoots. And then about five years ago, Paul Feig, who I think is is terrific, uh, Bridesmaids and going all the way back to Freaks and Geeks, uh, did an all-female 
reboot of the Ghostbusters story. It was kind of an origin story, not even an origin story. It was going, it was just telling the story as if the original had never happened. And even though it had a terrific cast, unfortunately, I thought the script was lacking. It was a huge disappointment. Now we have Ghostbusters Afterlife coming to theaters this weekend. Jason Reitman, who's a terrific uh, filmmaker in his own right, young adult in Juno and so many other films. He is the son of Ivan Reitman, who was the director and producer of the original Ghostbusters, who was very involved in this. And they had this whole idea of picking up the Ghostbusters story in present day, and it is a direct sequel to the first two films, especially the first film, which is referenced throughout this. So now we're in present day, and Carrie Coon, who's a terrific actor, uh, you might remember her from Leftovers and so many other things. And I'm going to give this spoiler alert because it's all out there. There's a ton of other spoiler alerts I'm not going to get into. Carrie Coon plays the estranged daughter of Harold Ramis's Egon Spangler. The late Harold Ramis played Egon, the nerdiest of all the Ghostbusters. And according to this storyline, he abandoned his daughter, played by Carrie Coon, when she was just a baby. He cut off ties with the other Ghostbusters, including Winston and uh, Venkman, the whole group. And he's been living in Oklahoma as this kind of crazy, they call him the dirt farmer, and conducting all these weird experiments all on his own. Nobody knows really what else happened to him, and he has now passed away. So Carrie Coon playing the daughter and her two young grandchildren, they're financially strapped. They're not having a good life. Things are tough for them. Now they at least have inherited Grandpa's farm. So they head out to Oklahoma and find out that it's this dilapidated farm, that he was deeply in debt, and he was conducting all these strange experiments. And it kind of takes off from there. And we have a modern-day Ghostbuster story where, you know, Zool and the Gatekeeper and all that, you know, the whole gang is going to get back together and it's going to be the end of the world again. And it's told mostly from the point of view of the kids. Uh, Grace McKenna plays Phoebe, the granddaughter of Egon Spangler, and she's kind of a mini Egon, probably the best thing in the movie. So it almost has kind of a, a Goonies or Super 8 feel to it. I feel like moving the story to Oklahoma was a huge misstep because the end of the world is nigh, but we see it from the point of view of like 50 people in a town. and It doesn't seem like the rest of the world knows about it. We miss all the, the electric energy that the original Ghostbusters had in New York City when the end of the world was coming and everybody there knew about it. And the other thing is this film is so concerned with being a nostalgic trip down memory lane and paying tribute to all the props and visual references, and I, I don't want to give them away, but it's like, I mean, again, you know from the trailer and stuff, the Ecto-1, the Cadillac that's turned into the ambulance resurfaces, and the Stave Puff Marshmallow Man might have a different kind of iteration, and all the equipment and the suits and everything, and it's so busy paying tribute to the original movie that it forgot to tell a really original story on its own. It's almost as if we went to Comic-Con and, uh, you know, remembered how much we loved the movie, Paul Rudd is in there. He's kind of the modern-day doppelganger for the Rick Moranis, Lewis Tully character, and he's terrific, of course. He's always going to be it's Paul Rudd, right? You know, and, and there's some terrific byplay with him and Carrie Coon. And again, I don't want to give stuff away, but when they really double down on the nostalgia in this movie, what should be emotionally impactful comes across as kind of macabre and ghoulish and weird and off-putting. So... The reviews so far that I've seen, uh, the early reviews are split. Some people love all the nostalgia, and I, I do love that part, but this is a distinct, definite thumbs down. Two stars uh, for me for Ghostbusters Afterlife. I, I really love what they were trying to do. I think moving the main setting to Oklahoma was a major misstep. I think 
wallowing in the nostalgia without creating new imagery and iconography, you know, uh, things like that, I think was a mistake. Good cast, incomplete script. All right, we're going to take a break. We're going to hear from Rokan about Portillo's, and then we're going to talk about what not to watch and some good stuff as well. Portillo's are known for their famous Chicago hot dogs with all the freshest and tastiest ingredients right down to the poppy seed bun and, of course, their legendary chocolate cake. But that's just the beginning, my friends. The menu has mouth-watering varieties of favorites from a charbroiled burger to an Italian beef to a mm-hmm. cheese fry to a chopped salad and the chocolate cake. Oh, man. Oh, yeah. If you are a fan of this podcast or heard any other episode of this, you know how I feel about the chocolate cake. It's the greatest chocolate cake in the history of chocolate or cake. Portillo's also has locations throughout the Midwest and in Florida, California, and Arizona. Order curbside pickup or delivery today. Ship Portillo's anywhere in the United States of America by ordering at portillos.com. That's P-O-R-T-I-L-L-O-S.com. All right, welcome back to Screen Time. I am Richard Roper. Rokan has the week off uh, every time around this week. We talk about what not to watch and also the good stuff that's coming out. And in this case, I'm going to talk about some stuff that's coming out this weekend, but also uh, some Thanksgiving weekend releases. Of course, a lot of these movies will come out the Wednesday before Thanksgiving. Can you believe it's right around the corner? Uh, In What Not to Watch, we already mentioned Ghostbusters Afterlife. I found it disappointing. I think it'll still do well commercially. It's a a beloved franchise, and I will certainly understand why some people will love it. It's certainly not a terrible movie, just underwhelming for me. Another underwhelming entry coming up this week is Bruised on Netflix. Now, this is an original movie. It's Halle Berry's directorial debut, and she also stars in this film, She plays a a disgraced, forgotten MMA fighter who is now living in near squalor with her boyfriend-slash-manager. He's kind of a jerk. Uh, Turns out that she's got a six-year-old child that she had abandoned when he was a baby. Now he's back in her life. She's got a very complicated relationship with her mother who wasn't there for her when she was going through horrible trauma as a child. All of this is not even the main drama, although it's certainly heavy stuff. The main drama is all about the comeback story. Jackie Justice is the name of the uh, MMA fighter played by Halle Berry, and she gets an offer to to go up against the champ, kind of out of nowhere, so it's very Rocky-esque. So a lot of the movie then is all about Jackie trying to get back in shape, training, getting ready for the big fight, while she's also trying to redeem herself in her relationships with her son, it's a lot of obvious metaphors, a lot of training sequences. I give Halle Berry a lot of credit. You know, she she throws herself into this role. She reminds her, she reminds us of why she's been a movie star for a quarter century. She looks amazing. She's fifty five years old. She's playing a you know an older MMA fighter. Obviously, she's not playing someone who's fifty five, maybe forty, and we believe that that's fine. Uh, the whole fight setup is very Rocky esque with a little million dollar baby thrown in there as well. We get a lot of those swirling indie camera movements during the fight sequences. That way you can have the stunt people and the real uh, actors uh, kind of interchange. It's a real uh, UFC champion who plays her opponent. 
Part of the problem is with the opponent, Lady Killer is her name. Uh, we don't get to know her until she steps into the ring. So there's no Apollo Creed or Ivan Drago type villainy uh, to the opponent. It's just someone she's fighting. It's well-intentioned, but it's really over the top. It's way too long, too melodramatic. So I cannot recommend Bruised on Netflix. Another disappointment for me was a documentary called Malfunction, The Dressing Down of Janet Jackson. This revisits the notorious episode from nearly 20 years ago at the Super Bowl halftime show. Justin Timberlake joined Janet Jackson on stage, and at the very end of their performance, he ripped away her top and her naked breast was exposed for all of nine sixteenths of a second, and it sent the world, especially America, into a tizzy. Next thing you know... Janet Jackson was at the heart of the scandal. Justin Timberlake was also implicated, although he skated a lot better than than Janet Jackson did and kind of, you know, came back from it a lot quicker than she did. The FCC was issuing fines. There were congressional hearings. The whole thing was blown completely out of proportion. Although this is a well-done, journalistically sound documentary, it doesn't really offer anything new. If you know the story, you know how it all played out. If you don't, you don't really need more than an hour and a half. They did not surprisingly got neither Janet Jackson nor Justin Timberlake to sit down in present day to talk about this. Over the years, Justin Timberlake has issued statements saying that it wasn't fair that Janet Jackson took the brunt of the blame uh, for the episode, that they were both involved. To this day, we don't know exactly what happened. I think it was a planned stunt in which we were supposed to see and it, you know, her red bra and then it got out of control and people lost their minds. And certain politicians and parents groups and stuff took advantage of that to act as if it were the worst thing in the world, which is when you think about the musical performances we see these days, it's really, really, really tame stuff. But, you know, Janet Jackson had been this groundbreaking star who had taken control of her own life and career and delivered huge, hugely successful albums and videos and concerts throughout the 90s uh, by the early 2000s. She was not quite as huge of a star. Justin Timberlake was on the way up. She had not released an album for a while. This was going to be one of her big comeback efforts, and it really backfired on her. She lost movie roles. She lost endorsement deals. She lost record contracts. She issued statements of apology that people felt weren't uh, completely sincere and really, really was unfairly thrown under the bus. In the meantime... Just a few years ago, Justin Timberlake is invited back to the Super Bowl halftime show. You know who wasn't invited back? Janet Jackson. All of that is, you know, definitely fodder for a documentary, but this is so dry, the documentary, and so by the book, and really offers no insight, so I can't recommend it. But we got good stuff. A lot of good stuff coming out. I want to mention a, a series on HBO and HBO Max. It's called The Sex Lives of College Girls, and that sounds like it's going to be this salacious girls gone wild type of thing it's a it's a comedy drama mindy kaling who i love is one of the co-creators and i have to say even, despite that prurient and kind of salacious title this is a wonderful series and it's about essentially five college freshmen at a prestigious school called essex college and they come from the obligatory different backgrounds and bring different worldviews, and they're all thrust together because they're all roommates, and that's what happens in college. All of a sudden, you meet somebody, and four days later, you're all intertwined in each other's lives. And yes, it delves into their sex lives, but it's really about the lives of college girls. Are you just now getting home? Wait, is this a walk of shame? I mean, is it a walk of shame if I stayed up all night in the library hooking up with my textbook? Like, ah. Wow, we are so different. 
so excited that classes are finally starting. What classes are you taking? I literally don't even know. I just signed up for anything that started with intro. Mm. Young Stalin could get it. Right? You could have been on Riverdale. Oh, I love college. Hey, is this Lane Murray's room? Damn, she's a lucky lady. Oh, she's my sister, actually. Yikes. And I think it's just beautifully written. It's really funny. It can be touching and moving. We see their relationships as they develop friendships, but also what their parents expect of them. And I've seen the first six episodes, and I never would have thought I'd be saying, like, oh, I can't wait to see more of this. But I really, really uh, am invested in these characters, and I think you will be too. It's called The Sex Lives of College Girls, HBO. That's coming out this week. There's a feature film that's getting a lot of buzz. Uh, will Smith has been uh, everywhere promoting his book, Will, but also the movie King Richard. In fact, I saw Will Smith in Chicago last week, a sidebar at the Chicago Theater, legendary theater in downtown Chicago. I was invited by his people to come to this. It's, it's his book tour, but again, he's promoting uh, King Richard. And it was actually fascinating because he told a lot of great stories about his upbringing, about his current personal life and his children, his movie and rap career. And then... At the end of his one-man kind of uh, book tour talking to the audience thing, he brought out his good friend DJ Jazzy Jeff, and they actually did a musical rap performance, and then all of a sudden we were back with the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. Pretty cool stuff. So King Richard is the movie in which Will Smith plays Richard Williams. This is based on the true story of the father of Serena and Venus Williams. He's been very high-profile throughout their careers, uh, pushing them, promoting them, guiding them, mentoring them. And yeah, he's a little bit of a huckster sometimes as well. And this movie gets all into that. It's set in the Compton of the 1990s as the girls were growing up. Uh, they're 14 and 12 essentially throughout much of this story, a little bit younger than that. It's amazingly done, beautifully acted. Obviously, we know how this is going to turn out. In some ways, it's your classic sports underdog movie. But it's more about the relationship in the family between the father and his wife and the children and the incredible odds they overcame than it is about the victories on the tennis court because we know that's going to happen. Will Smith will definitely get nominated for Best Actor. The film is called King Richard. I got these two great tennis players. All we need is a club. Everything to go from prodigy to pro. Raise your hand, Serena. Venus Williams. What you think? Nobody's taking that bet. Tennis takes expert instruction. It takes families with unlimited financial resources. It's like asking somebody to believe that you got the next two Mozarts in your house. Venus and Serena gonna shake up this world. And I want to close with uh, a wonderful, colorful, beautiful, heartwarming uplifting animated film from Disney. It's called Encanto, and I love this film. It will definitely get nominated for Best Animated Film. This is from two of the directors behind Zootopia, which was one of my favorite animated movies of the last 10 or 15 years. You've got uh, music here from Lin-Manuel Miranda. It is one of the most beautiful animated films you're ever going to see. If you've got kids and you want to see this in the theater, I, I think it'd be a great, great, great uh, theatrical experience. Uh, the film is set in Colombia, and it's all about the magical family, and they have this magical house. And when the kids reach a certain age, each one of them gets a special gift. But one of the children, Mirabelle, 
doesn't receive her gift on her special day. And now she's kind of considered the outcast of the family. And she has visions about the whole castle, the magical castle falling apart. So it gets into the typical Disney animated stuff where things get a little dark. And then, of course, there's healing and the misunderstandings are cleared up. And it's all set to beautiful music. And it's all about family and forgiveness and unity and community. It's called Encanto, and I think it is absolutely one of the frontrunners for best animated film of 2021. Casita? What's going on? The magic is in danger. We gotta get out of here! We must protect our home. We must protect our family. This is my chance. I will save the magic. Wait, how do I save the magic? The fate of the family is going to come down to you. I can't do this. Let me help you. The rats told me everything. All right, that's going to do it for this episode of Screen Time. I'm going to have Rokan take us out. The Rowan Roper Podcast is brought to you by AmericanEagle.com Studios. AmericanEagle.com is a full-service global digital agency providing best-in-class web design, development, hosting, digital marketing services, and so much more. Visit AmericanEagle.com for more information. Our executive producers are Renee Nelson and Tim Alanius, and our ever-suffering <laughs> production director and editor, Demita Menezes. Thank you for everything you do because you make us sound better than we deserve. We'll see you next time.